uh, an MA in New Testament studies, an MDiv in, with a concentration in apologetics. He has co-authored and authored 35 books, done numerous DVD projects, has been involved in three major debates with unbelievers, and often speaks all over the world on Christian evidences. He has served as the, in the Bible department at Apologetics Press for the last 20 years, uh, and he's the editor of the AP Children's monthly publication, Discovery. I need to mention that uh, Bear Valley, the Bible Institute, is so proud of our association with the men from AP. Apologetics Press has strengthened this brotherhood in so many ways over the years. They've provided so much material, and Kyle is certainly above, uh, one of those that has contributed so much to the strength of the apologetics in our brotherhood. And our students are blessed to be able to have the men from Apologetics Press teach their apologetics class and Christian evidence class. So throughout the weekend, uh, as you listen to these men, understand that our students get to listen to them quite frequently. And we're very proud of that association. We're proud of our, our, their willingness to work with us uh, in training preachers. And Kyle, come preach the word to us. Our connection actually goes back much farther than just the most recent years. I was coming through the stairway and got to see the 1980 picture of the students. I don't know if you can see that, but that is my father right there, Stan Butt, looking younger than I am at the time. Uh, I have been through the entire teaching process here at Bear Valley. When I was four years old. Now I understand that I slept through most of the classes on a pallet in the back, but uh, you know, I feel like that might have been what helped push me in the direction of being a gospel preacher, and I'm very excited to be one and am thrilled to get back into this building, which I literally have not stepped in since I was four years old. And so you're talking 42 years or so it's been since I've been back here. Of course, I've been uh, visiting via Zoom with the students and doing some teaching that way, but just physically in the building, it's so thrilling to me to get to be a part of it and see the tradition that has gone on here, a tradition of, I think, biblical excellence that might now, now we often joke with my dad, he tells us about Roy Lanier Sr. and the people that were the teachers at the time when he was here. And he's been a preacher now for the last oh, since 42 years. As long as I can remember, he's always preached. Now, he's done other things. He's gotten into the cattle business and car business and everything else. But in the process, he's always been a gospel preacher. And we often joke that what he learned here in his two-year period, and of course, uh, my mother was here too, and she was going through all the ladies' classes and things that he's been using that two years of education to preach for the last 40 years. And so it, it, it has done him really, really well. I think he's done a little bit of studying after that, but he got a lot of good stuff here. Want to ask you to do something for me in October the, on, on the 25th. It's going to be Wednesday. It's going to be down at the Faulkner Lectureship. David Hester is here with us, the director of the Bible department there at Faulkner. I'm going to be in a debate with probably the most, uh, the highest profile guy that I have been in a debate with to date. Uh, he was on the Ben Shapiro show and Ben Shapiro said he believed that he is uh, one of, if not the most uh, well-known atheistic spokespeople in the world. 
And his name is Michael Shermer. And what I would like to ask you please to do is pray for the success from God's point of view in that debate. And, and what we're always trying to do is just simply lift up the name and the character of God and let those people who are honest-hearted see the truth and the validity and veracity of the Christian faith and try to present that in a loving and kind way that will help people see that. And I believe that the more people we have praying for that event, the greater effect it will have on more people. And so I'd like to ask you please to put that on your prayer list. That means a whole lot to me. And I think it ultimately will mean a lot to the event. You and I both know the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man and woman avails much. And that is what I'm really asking for from you if you would put that on your list. You can take the long view or you can take the short view of the particular psalm that we're going to deal with. I'll tell you what I mean by that later, but we're going to take the long view. We're going to see a psalm that was in the works before God even spoke the world into existence. Before the first statement of creative utterance in Genesis chapter 1, the events of what we're going to read about in this particular psalm had been in God's mind and were going to be worked out almost immediately from when the creation began. There are some things that you just don't understand until you experience them. And I think this was one of those things for Eve. I know that God had told Adam and subsequently that information had gotten to Eve that there was one tree in the garden that they were not supposed to eat of. And if they ate of that particular tree, then they would surely die. But up until that point, when the word death was used, I don't think it had much of a reference point for her. As far as, okay, you'll surely die, but she had never seen anybody else die. She didn't understand probably what death meant. And I don't think it really hit her until the day she realized she would never see Abel again. The day that she realized I had a son who was alive and vibrant and kind and good and faithful, and I don't have him anymore. And from the point of the first sin, we see humanity's problem. And humanity's problem starts with Eve when, as she commits that first sin and Adam, who was right there with her, the Bible explains, was implicit in what was going on there, commits that first sin with her. In fact, as you will read in the book of Romans, Adam was the man actually who brought sin into the world. So there was something going on there with his implicity and his uh, place right there beside her, not stopping the event, being being implicit and complicit in the event. That's the word I'm looking for. So you have Adam there and Eve sinning and separating themselves from their perfect relationship with God, death entering the picture and their entire worldview shattered 
and them wondering how this can be fixed. And so as you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you read God saying, and I will put enmity, I will put a war between you and the woman talking to Satan and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the proto-evangelum. This is the prototype of the gospel that there's going to be an ongoing war that's going to take place between the seed of woman and Satan for the next X number of thousands of years And it's going to happen between the seed of woman. Now, I think it's very interesting that the chapter breaks were put in later, not in the original text. And if you go fairly immediately after this, there's chapter 4. And in chapter 4, you see that the Bible explains through Eve that a man was given to her from the Lord. There's no time frame put here. I believe that Adam and Eve really thought that when the seed of woman was going to defeat death, that was going to be something that happened quickly. Maybe something that happened with their next child. Now, here's what I also think is very interesting about this particular event. How had humans come onto the scene before Adam and Eve ever ever started having children? Well, they were just created. God took some red clay and breathed into them the breath of life, Adam, and then took a rib out of Adam's side and created the woman. People were created by God. And so when God says to Eve, there's going to be a seed of yours that is going to defeat Satan, that means it's not going to be another created human that's just going to pop up. It's going to be from you in some way. And so Eve there in chapter 4 says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Maybe expecting this to be her seed that would bring aright the things that she had and Adam had caused to go wrong. But see, we get the long view, don't we? And what I mean by that is looking back at that scene when she gives birth to that first child and she's possibly thinking maybe this is him, this is the seed of woman. We know that's not the case. In fact, we know that there's going to be a lot of water that pours under the bridge before this ultimately takes place. And so what God is doing in Genesis chapter 3 is helping us understand several things. Number one, that this hero of all humanity is going to be a human, going to be born into the world like every other human from the point of Adam and Eve on is going to be born. But what is interesting about this is that he specifically says that it's going to be the seed of woman. Now, historically, if you are going to look at how people keep up with genealogies, normally what side do they follow? Of course, they're going to be tracing the the seed or the genealogy of the father most all the time. And in this particular instance, people would not have known the significance of, well, the seed of woman, what, what's important about that? You know, we do, of course, understand the importance of that. But it's also going to do something else for us. It's going to classify for us a quality that is going to define this 
Messiah, this hero, this one who's going to defeat Satan. And that is he's going to be a human male. Now immediately, considering him to be a human male is going to cut the population of the world in half. And so you're going to be looking for a male from the seed of woman. Okay, so here's what you've got that you're now looking for. A male that's going to be born to some woman that came from Eve. Oh, okay. That narrows it down, doesn't it? Thank you. We got, what, 8 billion people in the world right now. That means about 4 billion of them are males that are from a woman that was from Adam and Eve. Okay, so uh, how's that going to help us? Well, God's going to continue to do this sort of thing. You know, what if I said, hey, you're going to need to be looking for a person who walks into this room. And when that person walks into this room, that's the guy who is going to give you a million dollars. Just go shake his hand. Uh, Are you going to want some more information about that guy? Okay, uh, let me help you out. We're going to have several thousands of people come into this room today. Let's work with me. And there's going to be a guy that comes into the room and he's going to be a male. So that's going to give you the information you need to find this guy. And you only get one shot to shake a person's hand. So make sure you shake the right person's hand. Okay, well, that's going to need a little bit more qualification, isn't it? And so as you continue with this idea of the coming Messiah, you see God after several hundred years. In fact, ultimately, probably after about 2,000 years, you see God picking out an individual by the name of Abram, whom he later changes his name to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, blessing, I will bless you and cursing, I will curse you. uh, And anybody who curses you, I will curse that person. And in you, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. Now, I have never in all of my preaching understood how to tell you what a remarkable statement this is to an individual. Because there were literally millions and probably billions. Some, some, I've even seen a, a suggestion that there were two billion people on the planet at the time of the flood. And so you're looking at Abram who comes about 400 years after the flood and God's saying, okay, if you want now to know where the Messiah is going to originate from, this man's family is it. So let me tell you how that would work. Okay, we've got a a man that's going to be coming into this room today sometime, and that man's last name is going to be Smith. Okay, all right, good. Uh, Smith is is a fairly common last name that might not get down to exactly what we need, but it's narrowing the picture now. Okay, now it's going to be His last name is going to be Smith. His genealogy is going to be from Abraham. Okay, great. Now, this is 2,000 years removed from the Proto-Evangelum. So now we have more information that is going to identify for us. He's going to be from the seed of Abraham. And then you see that my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Okay, now that's going to be very important because, you know, Abraham only had ultimately there before Isaac just one more child, Ishmael. But Ishmael's lineage is basically the whole Arabic nation and all of the people that sprung from him. And as you read about Ishmael, he had 12 sons and those 12 sons were mighty chiefs of Edom, etc. And so picking Isaac was going to be very, very important as well. And so not only is it going to be from the seed of Abraham, 
But Abraham had two very mighty sons, one of which established an entire group of people. The other one did as well. So which one of these two is it going to be? It's going to be Isaac. Okay, now we got a man named Smith and his great, 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 great grandfather is named Isaac. Okay, so we're looking for somebody who's related to Isaac Smith several hundred years ago. Okay, work with me. It's not Isaac. We'll just, it's illustration. It gets a little, a little muddy, but. Genesis 49, 10, then the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay, so Isaac, whose name is then, I mean, who, Isaac, whose son is Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, who then has 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. Well, which ones are going to be out of the 12? And then you follow that stream, you follow that thread of red down to Judah. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That is recognized as a statement of messianic prophecy coming from the tribe of Judah, which you well know is then meshed out for us in the Psalms. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. I think Isaiah is probably... There in the 700s, the most clear about this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. So now we've come from, it's going to be a man that is going to be born into the world. To it's going to be a man from the family of Abraham. And then Isaac, who had Jacob and Esau. And then Esau. See, I messed all that up. Esau was the Edomites. And uh, I'm, I'm moving a little bit too fast there. Because I'm trying to get to Psalm 22 and I'm trying to, uh, that was, Esau had the Edomites, the Ishmaelites were the ones that, okay, work with me, a little bit of historical inaccuracy there, track back. But anyway, we're back, we're back to this one. I'm getting there. I, I am getting there. Going to be from, from David. Now, when you read this picture of the Messiah, what do you get? Just, just a prima facie, straightforward reading of this. There's going to be a man. Uh, you remember David who killed a giant with a stone who basically subdued every nation around Israel at the time? I mean, this was the golden age of Israelite Jewish history. And whoever's coming is going to sit on the throne of David and of his government there will be no end. And of his kingdom, it's going to be established and he is going to deal out justice and judgment from that time forward. Now, where was David's capital city? There in Jerusalem, the old Jebusite city that became the capital of the lower Judah kingdom. And when David was around, the United Kingdom, everybody, all 12 tribes. And so 
This Messiah who's going to crush the head of Satan is going to sit on the throne of David. Uh, but, but there's going to be, there's going to be something else. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a root out of dry ground. You ever thought about that picture? A root out of dry ground. What he's trying to say there is, if you've ever seen a plant that looked like it was barely hanging on, that was so weak that a decent gust of wind would blow it down because it wasn't getting the kind of water and nourishment that it needed. You know, very much like the plants in my kitchen. You know, that, that, uh, I, we're great at killing plants in my house and many times I will go buy a plant that I should have watered a month and a half ago and it will start getting yellow and a little bit brownish on the edge of the leaves and it looks like, and that's the picture here. That... Isaiah 53 is explaining to you that when this person arrives on the scene, this person is going to look like a shriveled up dying plant that can barely get its leaves out of the dry ground. And then as you read Isaiah 53 about how he was despised and rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief to such a degree. Just above it, it says that there was no beauty in him. And there's nothing that we would desire him if we looked at him. That doesn't sound a lot like David, does it? David was ruddy and good looking. But the Messiah the text says, is going to be like a shriveled up plant coming out of a dry ground. And when you see him, there's nothing that you would look at and think, oh, now, now that's what a king ought to look like. In fact, I was listening to, to something called one of the great courses. It was on persuasion and how you can persuade people. And he started off this particular series, a very high credentialed guy. I think he had a PhD, was teaching from Harvard or Yale or something like that on how to persuade people. And he said, you know, I got some good news and bad news to start out. He said, uh, the good news is there's one identifiable trait that is the trait that has been shown to be the most persuasive. Uh, physical attractiveness. If you are physically attractive, you're going to be more persuasive than a person who's not. He said, if you're not, I'm sorry, you don't have the number one trait, but there are others that you can listen to this course and glean some information from and you can be more persuasive than you are now, but that's the number one. What is Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 trying to tell you? The Messiah is not coming with the number one exterior physical trait that's going to persuade people. You'll never look at him and think, that is what it looks like to be a hero. To be the hero. And so you got the problem, don't you? You've got this picture of this amazing 
king sitting on a throne, regal in all his royal authority with the scepter that represents authority and power on the throne of David who was able to subdue every nation around the Israelites. And then you've got a person over here who looks like a shriveled up weed. There's not a thing that you would look at and think there's anything physically good about him. And the Bible then in Isaiah 53 starts to explain to you he was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth and then it explains that after we hid our faces from him we were so embarrassed that we did not even want to look at him the next verses explain that even though we disdained this uncomely physical servant of God he was bruised for our Iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord's added and the Lord's put on him the iniquity of us all. And then you can, you can hear the despair in the people talking to the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. As he goes with them and he's talking to them and they don't know who he is. And he says, what are you talking about? And they say, well, we're talking about what happened recently in Jerusalem. I think it's interesting how they kind of uh, give Jesus kind of a smart aleck answer. Are you the only person in the area that doesn't know the events of late? Where have you been? And here's the statement that they make. We thought he was going to be the one. That's what we thought. But here's the problem. The problem was they could not put together in their minds how you're going to have a glorious regal king sitting on the throne of David and you're going to have a suffering servant that looks like a dried up weed that has no physical comeliness or attractiveness that's going to be cursed by God who's going to be hanging on a tree. And Deuteronomy explains that everybody who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. They couldn't, they couldn't fit it. And so Jesus tries to help them doesn't he? They're watching. They thought that Jesus was something special. He had done all kinds of stuff that nobody else could do. You remember that he had spoken in a way nobody else had spoken, that he literally brought people back from the dead, that God out of heaven rent the heavens asunder twice and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You read Peter recounting that event in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty when he received glory from the father who spoke and said, this is him. He triumphantly marches into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that was predicted by the prophets and everybody is so enamored and awed by him that they put tree limbs in front of him and they put their clothes on the back of this animal and they sing Hosanna to him. And everybody's thinking, this could be it, but what are, what are they thinking? This could be what? 
Oh, this could be when we Jews get out of Roman rule and we get an earthly kingdom set up and we 12 apostles get to sit on thrones beside our reigning king and this is going to be when he takes over. And they're shocked. When a mob with swords and spears and clubs comes and catches him by night in the garden of, of Gethsemane, marches him through a, an unjust trial and Jesus winds up hanging on a cross between two thieves with a sign over his head in mockery that says the king of the Jews. Is it if you're a Jew, is that who you want to associate with as your king? Oh, the Jewish nation was so angry that that sign even got up there. You remember how the, the leaders of the Jews went to Pilate and said, whoa, 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 whoa. don't say the king of the Jews. You need to say that he said I'm the king of the Jews. Just another instance of God painting the picture how he wanted it painted when literally the Jewish nation was crucifying their own king. And Jesus wanted them to know that. And so while the scene is playing out, you hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Do you know if you're a Jew and you hear that statement, you know exactly where it comes from? You know, there's a hundred and, 150 psalms. No. Yeah, 150 psalms with a... I'm thinking of Psalm 119. See, I'm all over the place today. Psalm 119's got, what, 176 verses, which is the number of the alphabet, et cetera. Yeah, that's why. Okay, so you got 150 psalms. Most of them, if I were to quote a, a, a phrase for you, you wouldn't even know it. You would ask me, you know, where's that, where's that from? Why are we dealing with Psalm 22 this morning? Because Jesus screams it from the cross. Now, the big discussion of Jesus screaming this from the cross has been, well, how did God forsake him? Was it that God separated from him for a time because the sin of the whole world was on him? Was this a time of so complete loneliness for Christ because he and God, because of the sin of the world, did not have the fellowship that they had had up until this point? There's lots of theological discussion that could go down on that point. And, and I, don't, I don't know exactly where I sit on all of that. But the fact of the matter is, I think that Jesus quoted that for another also very important reason. Because if you go to Psalm 22 and you read the first verse and you're a Jewish Old Testament knowledgeable follower of God, you know that that is a song that your nation has been singing for the last thousand years, written by David, upon whose throne the Messiah is supposed to sit. 
And David himself is screaming, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, quick question, had God forsaken David? Now, we're going to look a little bit more into the psalm and see what the outcome of this particular psalm is. But if you were a Jew who had been reading your songbook, in your mind, you then start to play the other verses of this song. Now, watch the other verses of this song. You get down to about verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, a broken piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You're a Jew watching this scene play out. Jesus Christ just launched your mind into the song that your nation has been singing for a thousand years and you get to the part in your mind where it says they pierce my hands and feet and you look up at the cross and you see that literally taking place with Jesus Christ. And then you keep playing that song. Look at verse 17. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And you are standing watching this scene but for the most part you're not you're not one of the people who is trying to to assess the situation correctly. In fact, if you'll go just a few verses above this to verse 9, all those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Does that sound familiar to you? Almost word for word what the Jewish nation was saying as they walked by our Lord hanging in the epitome of shame on the cross with his hands and feet pierced. You've got a a person who is so poor that the only thing he literally has to his name are the clothes on his back and the soldiers gamble for those. Now they, they... separate all the small pieces that they could, but there was one, that cloak that was made without a seam that they said, well, if we rip this apart, it's not going to be very valuable. Let's just, whatever it was they were doing, roll some dice, draw a straw, something like that. And whoever gets it, gets it. The king of the Jews is hanging on a cross with his arms, with his hands and his feet pierced. He's got not a shred of anything to his name. And you're watching the scene as the nation makes fun of him with words almost identical to a song you have sung in your nation for a thousand years. 
And what is Jesus trying to show you? I'm who you've been looking for. I'm the Messiah. And ironically, this is how I crush the head of Satan. Now, what's interesting to me, in, in my Bible, it's, it's laid out this way. I don't know if it's laid out this way in yours. You go to verse 21. And this is the part of the psalm I think many of us don't get to. We stop right there and we think, oh, that's amazing messianic prophecy. That's amazing that Jesus was bringing the Jewish nation's attention to that. Any person who was trying to be honest with the scene would have assessed that, okay, this is exactly what the psalmist predicted to play out. You've got the Jewish nation wagging their heads, making fun of him, saying there's no way he could be it because if he was, he would come down from there. You've got his clothes being cast lots for. You've got his hands and feet pierced. And that's what this psalm is about. On, on my next page, just at the very top, you can't see that there's just one line, just one line. And here's what the line says. You have answered me. You see, with this psalm, lots of times I think we stop at the cross. But that's not the message of this psalm. That's not the message of what David was saying. And it's not the message of what Jesus Christ was saying. Jesus was repeating David's statement and said, why have you forsaken me? And then the victory of the cross comes in verse 21. Now watch what happens after verse 21. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard him. Now let's go to, I think, the New Testament passage that nails this down. You look in Hebrews chapter 5, and I want you to see this. It's so exciting to me. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 5. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He screams to God and says, let this cup pass from me. He screams on the cross and says, why have you forsaken me? And the text says, God could have saved him from death. The only one who could have. But now look at Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 5 or 7. And was heard because of his godly fear. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And now look at verse Nine, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You know, this psalm is multifaceted. It was David crying out in a time that he was in trouble. God hearing David and rescuing David from his trouble. It was a psalm that was in the mind of God before time eternal so that when Jesus ultimately, historically, physically hung on a cross, he could scream that and every honest-hearted person listening to that would recognize that this was the Messiah. 
But it's also a psalm that helps us understand that when we are in a situation that seems like God has forsaken us, it seems like God's not listening, like he's not responding how we think he should. I was reading a a quote from a, a good friend of mine. His name was Charles, worked with me at Apologetics Press for about several years. In September, I think it was of 2015, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. By April of 2016, he was almost dead. Very healthy. Within about six months, the brain tumor had totally taken all of his health. And he made a statement on Facebook that I have in my office that I read periodically. And he said, some of you have heard about what's going on in my life. He said, and you are sad for me. But I want you to know that I'm not sad. And I want you to know that I'm not afraid. He said, I have a relationship with Jesus, with God. And I know that when I leave this world, I'm going to a better place. And he said, I hope that you will seek God even in the good times. But he can be found much easier in the hard times. When you think God is not listening, what's the point of Psalm 22? And he heard him. God always hears his people. He will come to your rescue. Might not be how you think, but it will always be ultimately better than anything you could even imagine. And while you're in the middle of it, it hurts. But on the other side of it, when you realize God hears you, then what do you want to do? Proclaim the praises and glory of your God in the assembly and tell everybody, listen, if you just wait, this is what it looks like. Let's let Psalm 22, the example of Jesus Christ, incite us, urge us, encourage and set us on fire to let people know that God loves them, always hears them, and wants them in his family. Thank you so much for being here this morning. What better way to start the day than at the cross of Jesus Christ, amen? And a reminder that...